0: Hi, welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. My name is Jillian and we're so glad you're joining us. Today, Pastor Brian Broderson continues through our series, Life in His Name, with a message entitled, I Give Them Eternal Life. In the debate over once saved, always saved, the concern seems to be that if you tell people they can't lose their salvation, they'll go out and live in sin. This is a reminder for us all, it is doubtful that anyone taking the message of the believer's security in Christ as a license to live in sin is a true believer. Because, as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, and they will by no means follow the voice of a stranger. Are you following Jesus the shepherd? Continue to do so, and know he has promised to lead you safely home. So here we are in our journey through John's gospel, and, and about two months have passed now. We don't see that in in the text necessarily but we left off with the um, all of those things that that surrounded the healing of the man who was born blind and we know that 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 took place in relation to the feast of tabernacles and the feast of tabernacles uh, would would take place uh, late september Uh, through sometime uh, mid-October. And so now we are a couple of months further down the road, and Jesus is once again in Jerusalem, but this time at a different feast, the Feast of Dedication. And it's here at this Feast of Dedication that he once again is encountering the the opposition from the religious leaders and he once again picks up on what he had been talking to them about a couple of months earlier about him being the shepherd and so we'll we'll get to that in a moment but just the feast of dedication or as we read here, the festival of dedication, Um, we would know this today. If you have uh, Jewish friends, you would know that when we as Christians are celebrating Christmas, Jewish people are celebrating Hanukkah. And Hanukkah means dedication. And so this particular feast is not one that was laid out in scripture by Moses or the prophets for the people uh, to observe, Uh, There were seven feasts, they're called the seven feasts of the Lord, the seven feasts of Yahweh. And those feasts were a requirement God had given to the nation, and they're they're spelled out in uh, Leviticus 23, the Passover, um, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the... Uh, day of Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets and so forth. So this was a feast that wasn't rooted in God's command, but it was a feast that did celebrate the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated. So Remember the children of Israel? They were led away captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple that was built by Solomon. And when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. And after the, the time of Alexander the Great, so Alexander the Great, he basically comes in. The Persians had ruled the Babylonians, then the Persians, then Alexander the Great comes and uh, he takes over that whole, he conquers that, that whole, what was the, the Persian empire. And then Alexander dies at a very young age and his uh, empire was divided up between four of his generals. And part of his empire was in um, the area of Syria and another part of it was in the area surrounding Egypt so it wasn't limited just to Egypt or Syria but in in the surrounding region and so in the south there were the Ptolemies and in the north there were the Seleucids and these two powers they're, they're Greek so they're their objective, like Alexander, was to Hellenize the world, or to turn the world into a Greek world, with Greek language, and Greek literature, and Greek philosophy, and Greek religion. And so Israel existed between these two Greek empires. The Ptolemies dominated them in the early part, and then the Seleucids dominated them later. Well, under the reign of a man named Antiochus IV, who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning that he, was a, he saw himself as a revelation of God, um, he sought to impose Hellenistic culture on Israel in a way that no other uh, of the Seleucid kings had done. So he was going to force them to become Greeks. He was going to force them to renounce Judaism. He was going to erase Judaism and replace everything with Greek religion. And so one of the things that he did beside murdering multitudes of them, uh, burning the scriptures, he also desecrated the temple by having a, a pig slain on the altar. In the temple in jerusalem and that was in approximately 167 167 years before christ this led to a revolt on the part of the jews and they were led by um, a family of the priest matthias and his he was a hasmonian and he had a son named judas and judas became known as judas maccabeus and maybe you've heard the the word the maccabees if you if you've ever looked at a bible that has the apocrypha in it like a catholic bible for example you'll find that there are two books of the maccabees there well maccabee means hammer Judas was the hammer because this small band of guerrilla warriors led by Judas they ultimately ousted the Seleucids and in 164 BC they cleansed the temple and they rededicated the temple and thus annually they would celebrate the feast of dedication so That's what's happening as we pick up the story in verse 22. Jesus is there at the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. And once again, as I said, the religious leaders are right there to pick up where they had left off. And so it says the Jews, verse 24, who were gathered around him, They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, remember, John's purpose in writing this gospel is... You, you remember it. His purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And so John frames his whole gospel with that objective. And so here, the religious leaders, they ask Jesus, point blank, are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. Don't, don't keep us in suspense and what does jesus say he said i have told you but you do not believe so in in so many ways jesus had been communicating to them that yes indeed he was the messiah he had said that directly to a few people you remember the the samaritan woman the samaritan woman he's having a conversation with this woman she's not even jewish She's a a Samaritan, and um, in the conversation with her, Jesus is talking about giving her living water and so forth, and she says, we know that when Messiah comes, he's going to teach us everything, and Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am the Messiah, so he had revealed himself to the Samaritan woman, and to the religious leaders, he had revealed himself not John doesn't record for us that at any moment he said to them, I am the Messiah. But he was proving that he was the Messiah in a number of different ways. And he was essentially claiming by his words that he was equal with God. And so in these verses right here, 23 through 33 we come to this culmination where jesus is again carrying on this this dialogue and this debate with them and at the end of this it says in verse 31 again his jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him again they picked up stones to stone him remember they had already done this earlier so this is the second time the leaders of the nation are uh, attempting to assassinate Jesus. So once again, they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? What a question. For which of these works do you stone me? They said, we are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, this is, this is exactly what we're told in the fifth chapter. Uh, that was the reason then that they took up stones. Well, he, he had... Uh, he had done this on the Sabbath day. He was claiming that God was his father. And thus he was claiming equality with God. You see, we think, I, I, I think we think like this. When we hear the Son of God, we somehow miss what that actually meant to those who heard it at that time. When, when the title the Son of God was used, that was a statement of equality with God. We, we might think of it as, well, you know, there's God and then there's a son of God. God is greater. The son is lesser. But no, the reality is when Jesus claims to be the son of God, the unique son of God, he's claiming equality with God in as much as he is claiming to have the same nature as God. So, so this is the claim of Jesus. This is the claim of the New Testament. And this claim... Uh, bothers people still to this very day people resist the idea that jesus is god that that there's uh, this equality between the father and the son now augustine perhaps you've heard that name one of the greatest theological minds in the history of the church who lived in the the late 4th, early 5th century, listen, listen to what he said about this particular incident. He said, he made this observation. He said, see how the Jews understood what the Arians do not. And then he goes on, the reason they are angry is that they could not conceive of Jesus' words, I and my father are one in any other way, but that he meant the equality of the father and the son. So why do I bring that up? I bring that up because the Arians are the theological ancestors of the Jehovah's Witnesses and all who deny the equality of the father and the son. But Augustine makes this observation. He says the Jews get what the Aryans don't get. They understood that Jesus was claiming equality with God. How many of you have ever spoken to a Jehovah's Witness? Anyone? Okay. And I'll tell you, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have upped their game. Have you noticed that? I mean, you know, they have some really amazing um, uh, like their materials these days they've really made them you know they've updated them they they look really cool they've got these little stands that they set up in uh, shopping malls and down at the beach and different places and they're out there peddling their religion the watchtower society and they're their main emphasis is that jesus is not equal with the father they are the witnesses of jehovah because jehovah is he is the almighty god jesus he's just a mighty god and even their new world translation translates john chapter one remember where john says uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, they stick an A in there. The word was a God. And so they subsequently come up with two gods. But like I'm saying, this is not new. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses are the descendants of the Arians. Ari, the Arians were the followers of a man named Arius, who back in the early days of the church... Uh, in the 300s, he denied uh, the very same thing. He denied that Jesus was equal with the Father. And Arianism uh, had a great impact at that time. Maybe you've heard of the Council of Nicaea and even uh, the, the creeds that came out. Those creeds came out as... Uh, a response to the Arian heresy, and it was at the Council of Nicaea that Arius was deemed to be a heretic and that his teaching was false teaching. But it's passed down to us today primarily through the Jehovah's Witnesses, but not exclusively through them. So it's anyone who would take the position um, that Jesus is not equal with the Father, that he is somehow less than God, that would be to take uh, the Arian position. So, this is their reason for attempting to stone Jesus. And so he goes on, And he says this, and he's going to support his claim through two things. He's going to point, number one, to scripture, and secondly, he's going to point to his own works. So he says, is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 82 verse six. And there in uh, Psalm 82 verse six, it says, I said, you are gods. You are all the sons of the most high. Now, this, the 82nd Psalm where Jesus is quoting from, is referring back to something earlier in the history of the people. When God set up the judges over the nation, he referred to them as Elohim. He referred to them as gods. And so, again, Jesus said, "Uh, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? And then he, this is how he argues, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. So Jesus points, like I said, he points back to scripture. He says, look, your, your own scriptures use the same terminology speaking of the judges over the nation. God says, you are uh, Elohim. And since, since God gave this word to mortal men, how are you accusing me of blasphemy when I am the one who was sanctified and sent into the world by the Father? How are you accusing me of blasphemy For saying that I'm the son of God. So Jesus, uh, his argument is from the lesser to the greater. So if if the lesser, these mere mortals, are being referred to by your own scripture as gods, um, how could you say that I, the greater, am blaspheming for saying that I'm the son of God? So he appeals to scripture, and then he moves on, and he appeals to the works. He says... Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So that didn't really persuade them at all. But, the, but these are the two things that Jesus points to. He points to the scripture and he points to his works. And when we today, when we communicate with people about who Jesus is, those are the two things that we also are going to point to. We're going to point to what the scripture says about, well, we can go to the Old Testament and point to what the scripture says about the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for example, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they tell us about the deity of the Messiah, that the Messiah is going to be a man, yes, but he's going to be a man who is God. And then, of course, we have the New Testament as well. And we have uh, many examples in the New Testament of uh, teaching that Jesus is God in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh, Paul tells us, and many other passages. And we've already uh, remember some weeks ago um, when... Pastor John was teaching uh, eight verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 58 of, of this gospel of John. Remember Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes the name of God to himself. We looked at the I am's of Christ, how he is taking the name of Yahweh uh, to himself. So we have that, and then we have the works. We point to the works. And so even in the the time of Jesus, as was said, um, no one has ever done the things that he did. And that is still true to this very day. Now, all of that brings us more or less to the end of the chapter. Um, The chapter just goes on Um, Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days Uh, there he stayed many people came to him they said though John never performed a sign all that John said about this man was true and in that place many believed in Jesus so despite the opposition despite the uh, attempts on uh, his life even despite the fact that there were threats that if you believed in this man, you would be cast out of the community, Um, still many were believing in him. I want to focus this morning on the verses that I passed over, verses 27 through 30. And and this, once again, picks up the, the theme of the shepherd and the sheep. And I want to focus on this particular portion for the rest of our time together this morning because these verses right here are, in, in many ways, I think they are the most assuring statements we have in Scripture concerning the security of our salvation, now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this before. I'm sure the thought has crossed your mind. Uh, some people, you know, maybe a thought just comes and goes once in a while. Other people sometimes are more plagued by these kinds of things. But the, the question being, um, am I going to really make it ultimately into the presence of the Lord? Is my salvation going to hold? Or am I going to, in the end, am I going to be lost somehow? Anybody ever have any thoughts about that? I mean, you know, these are common things that that go through our minds. And this is a common tactic of Satan to try to undermine our security in our salvation and to try to unsettle us over the issue of whether or not we are really ultimately going to be saved. And I've dealt with it myself and I know numerous cases where people have dealt with it. So these verses. And as we'll see in a moment. Uh, others along with them. I think. One of the things that they do. Is they give us the kind of security. That we need. To make it through thick and thin. To face whatever the devil throws at us. And that's why I want to. Focus on. These verses. But but notice now. So. Again, this is in the context of the, uh, the argument with the religious leaders. Uh, but Jesus just says to them point blank, he says, you are not my sheep. So th- this is the problem. They, they can't hear a word he's saying. Why? He says, because you're not my sheep. And then he goes on and he talks about his sheep. And listen to what he says. My sheep here my voice or listen to my voice. And I think listen is is good rather than simply hear because we all know that we can hear things and not listen. Ask Cheryl about this. Because she says all the time, Brian, you're not listening to me. Even though I hear what she's saying, and sometimes I must confess she is right I'm not listening but but we could do that right We can hear stuff you know have you ever li- you know sometimes i'll listen to a podcast or something and i'm listening I, I actually have my you know it's it's going right in my ear and fifteen minutes later I'm like, what in the world did i i, I didn't he- i I heard it it was the audio was was going into my ear, but i I guess I didn't listen. So I have to go back and rewind it and, you know, listen again. So Jesus is saying, my sheep listen to my voice. This is a characteristic of sheep. In the case of sheep related to Jesus as the shepherd, we listen to his voice. And then he says, and they follow me. And they follow me. This is, these are the things that mark out the sheep. The true sheep are those who listen and follow Jesus. So that's what the sheep do. But then the shepherd, he speaks of himself in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. So the sheep listen and follow. The shepherd knows and gives. The shepherd knows and gives. Jesus knows us. And the implication is that he knows us thoroughly. He knows us completely. He knows us intimately. And he gives. And what does he give? He gives eternal life. He gives eternal life. So this is gift language here. The gift of God is eternal life. The gift he gives. And then the promise, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So so this is the language of security. This is the, the language that speaks security to you and to me as believers to know that whatever may come whatever the devil throws at us whatever the world assaults us with that he promises to keep us this gives us assurance of our salvation now in case you don't know Whether or not one is secured in their salvation eternally upon receiving Christ is debated among Christians and has been debated among Christians for literally centuries. Centuries upon centuries. And today, you will find that Christians are divided on this you will find that some Christians are absolutely convinced that they are secure in their faith in Christ and that there's nothing that is is going to um, affect that ultimately. There's nothing that can alter that. Once they received Jesus, that sealed their destiny forever. And then there are Christians who think, well, it's not quite that clear or simple. And it is possible that even though you might have been saved, at one point you could potentially lose your salvation if you don't continue along in you know, whatever, whatever it is they, they put there. Now, here's the, the, the challenge is that Scripture, in some ways, seems to say both things. Some Scriptures say, clearly, like the ones we just read here in John 10, I mean, these are crystal clear. You can't get any clearer than this. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. I and my Father are one. I mean, wow. That's it. But then you find other passages, and they, they, they almost seem to be contradicting what is said here. Now, earlier this week, Cheryl and I were just sitting out in our backyard reading our Bibles in the morning. And we had a conversation about this because uh, she was reading in 2 Peter and this is the passage that she read. And this is a great example of what I'm talking about here. Here's the passage. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then later on, Peter goes on and he concludes with these words. You, therefore, beloved, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. So, that's just one example. And there are other passages that are similar. So, verses like this and a few others seem to contradict the idea that a believer can never lose their salvation. Now, let me just share with you my own personal conviction. My own personal conviction is that the verses here in john 10 are where i land you cannot lose your salvation but i will also tell you for years i was on the other side Uh, some of you know pastor tony clark some of you hear tony uh he's he's on the he's on our radio station k-wave uh he's on the pastor's perspective program with me on tuesdays Tony and I go, go back many decades, and um, Tony has, as, as you will know if you've heard Tony, he's got one of the sharpest minds uh, when it comes to scripture knowledge and, and references and chapters and verses and those things, and boy, him and I used to get in the most heated debates over these kinds of things. Um, but I used to hold the, the position, and, and Tony did as well. Uh, he used to hold the position that, that looks at things more through this Second Peter chapter 2 passage. That you, you better watch out. You, you can lose your salvation. So how do we resolve this? Or can we? Resolve it well. There's a couple of things that I will present to you. Number one, scripture does not contradict itself, scripture does not contradict itself. It's illogical and against reason to think that both could be true now we do sometimes talk about how in scripture there are um there are these tensions and and the one of the most common ones is is when you're talking about the sovereignty of god and the responsibility of of humans and uh, you know theologians and christians for centuries have tried to reconcile how, how is it that god is sovereign but then we still have responsibility and some say, well, it's, it's actually sort of both. And I have an opinion about that, but I don't want to go into it right now. But, but when you look at this one, I don't think you... I, this, is, <clears throat> this is really an either-or case. It can't really be both. You can't never lose your salvation and also possibly lose your salvation. <laughs> It really has to be one or the other, in my opinion. Now, secondly, passages that speak of the eternal security of the believer are many, there are more, in other words, and they are unequivocal. Unequivocal, meaning they are crystal clear. There's no possibility of a different way of understanding or interpreting them. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Each of these statements can only be read one way, they are unambiguous. There, there's no room in these statements to find a place where, well, but but but, but maybe. Well, and, and some have actually attempted to do it. <clears throat> and here's how they attempt to do it. No one can snatch them from my hand. Ah, true, but you could jump out of his hand. No one can take you out, but you can can move yourself out. Well, uh, maybe. But we're going to run up against a problem in a moment when we look at the next verse. That's going to show that that isn't really a possible interpretation. So... All the passages that support the security of the believer, they are like this. They are unequivocal. They cannot be interpreted any other way. And I want to give you one more example and then a few other references for you to consider on your own later. But the other example that I want to give to you is the great passage in Romans chapter 8, Beginning in verse 29, it says this For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. Now, if you think about this, glorification experientially is ahead of us. We're not experientially there. But Paul says that we are already there in the sense of positionally. So Paul goes on to say in verse 35, he asks this question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then in verses 38 and 39, he says this, I am persuaded, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This answers the we can jump out of his hand argument because it tells us that no created thing can do this. Now, you are a created thing. You're in that category. Now, for further consideration, you might want to jot these down. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, and then verses 13 and 14, and also Philippians 1, 6, which I will just, uh, you know, simply state it. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And and Hebrews 12, 2, uh, Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. But but the Ephesians passage is a little more lengthy. So read that on your own. Now, but let's go back to 2 Peter for a moment. And passages that are similar to it. It's not the only one. There are others that, that give that same sort of sense. And, and there is clearly a warning. And we don't, we don't want to take away from the warning. You know, I think in Scripture you have... You have the clear statements like we have in here in the 10th chapter. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And and these verses are, are, are very much to be given to those who are uh, feeling that somehow they're not going to make it. They need to be encouraged. But for those who maybe are overconfident and... Would maybe even think that, well, I can kind of just live any way I want and not have to worry about it. I think the the warning passages are there just to get us to rethink where we're really at. So here's the thing as I was saying about, you know, some passages like the John 10 uh, passage are unequivocal, and the Romans 8 passage, and the Ephesians 1 passage. In other words, they they say what they say and you can't possibly draw any other conclusion than absolute security, total security. But the, the passages like the second Peter passage, I think they can all be understood to apply to those who have the outward appearance of believers, but were not truly born of the spirit. And John, this John, the writer of this gospel, in his first letter, he, I think he tells us that. In chapter 2, verse 19 of of 1 John, uh, he speaks of those who seem to leave the faith. And there, there have been plenty of people, I have known plenty of people, that seem to have left the faith. They seem to have lost their salvation. They... did seem for a season and sometimes a long season to really have been a Christian. And maybe they really are Christians. And if they are, I believe that they'll come back. But listen to what John says. John says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, every, everybody for a few years thought that Judas was just as saved as Peter. Was Judas saved and ended up losing his salvation? Jesus tells us that Judas was never saved, even though he appeared to be saved. So we, we, we can illustrate it with a life. Finally, what did Jesus say he gives? I give them eternal life. Eternal life is life that never ends. Eternal life, by definition, is impossible to lose. If you have eternal life, it's eternal. (laughs) That's the point. It, It doesn't stop at any time. So if it stops at a certain point, the conclusion, I think, is that you actually did not have what you perhaps thought you had. Now, in the debate over once saved, always saved. That's what we're talking about here. The concern seems to be, I've heard this many times, that if you tell people that they can't lose their salvation, they'll go out and live in sin. We don't want to give people too much security because we know what they're going to do with it. That is what I've heard people say. Well, let me say this. It is doubtful that anyone taking the message of the believer's security in Christ as a license to sin is a true believer. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. And the voice of another, they will not follow. So if a person claims to be saved, but they don't listen to Jesus or follow Jesus, then you have to question the validity of their claim. So, the great news, the great, great news is that we are secure. Christ has redeemed us once for all. And he is committed to keeping us now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy our confidence is in christ our shepherd here's the question are we following him that's that's the identifying mark how do we know If we're sheep, we're following Jesus. We're following the shepherd. We're listening to him. And if we claim to be sheep, but we're not listening or following, then we have to question the validity of our claim. As we close this morning, what a great opportunity just to thank the Lord to thank Him that we are indeed His sheep, that He has called us, that He has spoken to us, that He has given us eternal life, and that He is committed to guiding us safely to our final destination. and. Of course, all of that was secured through the cross. And so as we share in the bread and in the cup together this morning, as we have this, this opportunity once again to just pause and say, thank you, Jesus. Let's, let's think about the fact that He has secured for us our eternal destiny. We can rest in His promise. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. We can rest in His ability to lead us safely home. And we can commit our loved ones and our all of those that we're concerned with, we could just say, Lord, you know, we're we're trusting you as, as the good shepherd and we're thanking you. And if you're with us today and maybe you're wondering, am I really a sheep? Is he really my shepherd? Well, here's a moment to end all doubt. Listen to him He's calling you to come, follow him. And that'll be the confidence. And so, Lord, as we share now in the bread and the cup and as we think on these things, Holy Spirit, move on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.